Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctors In podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave, where I talk to growers and specialists about the plants they grow in greenhouses and indoor farms. To date, all of my guests have talked about what it takes to cultivate crops in CEA facilities on Earth. For today's episode, I'm talking to a plant scientist who has a very unique perspective on what it takes to grow plants in space. For over 30 years, Gary Studi has worked with NASA to conduct research into plant physiology and bioregenerative life support to enable a safe and sustainable human presence in space. During this time, he's learned a lot about plants and the potential of controlled environment agriculture to grow food and medicine to keep humans healthy and fed both in space and on Earth. As the president and CEO of Synergy, he uses his expertise to consult to us mere mortals on Earth, helping growers apply resources efficiently and effectively, and by researching the beneficial relationships between microbes and plants. On that front, Gary was one of the leading contributors to SEEDS, the Controlled Environment Agriculture Design Standards, developed as sort of a lead certification standard for CEA production facilities, that provides a comprehensive framework for implementing best management practices into their design and operation. What else can I say? We are in for a real treat in today's episode. Gary, it is so awesome to have you on the show today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So thank you for being here with me today. Well, thank you very much. It's always a treat to talk to you and I I'm looking forward to, to what what you've got to ask me <laughs> <laughs> well you know the first time I was really introduced to you was at that ICCEA uh, conference in Panama I don't know seven or eight years ago and I remember you gave a talk about plant growing plants in space and it was in microgravity and just all the various challenges and how interesting it was and and what you guys were doing with different plants. And I have just been fascinated ever since. And so, um, yeah, I think this conversation is going to be really fun and interesting. So, yeah, it's fun stuff. It's fun stuff. It is. It's All right. Well, than it looks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not just easy. You don't just plant a seed and it just grows into space. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> just like on Earth, right? Just like on Earth. <laughs> All right, so let's start with how did you get interested in CEA and horticulture in the first place? Um, well, a actually, I, it started back in in grad grad school. I was um, I was a, a horticulturist. I was at took a deg my degree was in pomology, actually apple peaches, plums, players, and I did a PhD in in oliveology or growing olives in California, alternate bearing. And in some of those tests, we were looking at control of flowering. So I began using some growth chambers to control temperature and, and such. And I, I ended up working at the uh, University of, of Maryland and in College Park. And it was about the time the light lab at the Smithsonian is closed in that uh, department, received a number of the growth chambers used uh, that came out of that light lab that had originally been used to do the original phytochrome studies. It was all very neat. So we were looking at 
you know, light spectra on, you know, flowering and remote sensing. So needed chambers where we could control the light to look at the spectral output. And uh, one thing led to another, and then the opportunity arose to go down and do some experiments on, it was at Kennedy Space Center, coolest project, one of the coolest I've ever worked on. It was controlled ecological life support systems, uh, cells, and its objective was to demonstrate the feasibility of keeping one person alive for one year using biological life support. And it was a closed system. We could track oxygen, water, lights, and it was like Legoland for a plant physiologist. I couldn't say no. And um, I went down for 18 months and I've been down here ever since. Wow. So was it successful? Were you able to keep one person alive for one year? Well, they wouldn't let us lock anybody up inside that chamber. But what we did do was over a period of decades took this big chamber is about two stories tall, fitted it with, I mean, in today's world, it's kind of scary, but it had uh, 96, 400 watt high pressure sodium lamps, a giant uh, heat exchanger to take the heat out. And we, it had less than 10% leak rate. And so within that, we began pushing the limits of productivity for a lot of crops. And those limits are still being used to design what we call, you know, the baseline requirements for lunar and Mars bases. At the end, they finally ended it after about a decade, and we grew potatoes continuously in closed environments for over a year. Subsequently, is our 418-day study. Subsequently, at Johnson Space Center, in a larger chamber, there were four individuals living in it and were, was set up to a plant chamber where we were actually doing gas exchange, growing wheat to take the CO2 and producing the oxygen, recovering the nutrients, taking showers with wastewater, recovering that back into to the plants. So really a comprehensive, closed environment. You know, you take up, you know, one bottle of water with you to Mars, you're going to be drinking that water for the next three years. So how, how are you going to use it? How are you going to maintain it? How can you sustain it? How can you purify it? Is there a rule of thumb for how many plants it takes to support one person? The There are, generally speaking, uh, there are three things that we, well, really four things that you need to stay alive in a closed system. Uh, one is you need to take our CO2 so we don't asphyxiate and we can produce oxygen so we don't use it up and we don't suffocate. We need water so we don't dehydrate and ultimately food. So with transpiration, we can produce water and generally it's four to five meters squared of canopy coverage. It doesn't really matter whether it's lettuce or wheat, it's leaf structure. We'll produce enough uh, water for one person on a continuous basis for a year. We need about 
20 square meters to produce uh, the enough oxygen and remove the CO2 that we produce on a continuous basis. And then depending upon the crop, uh, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 square meters. Depends on the harvest index, uh, how much is going to waste and how much you're actually eating. But uh, our rule of thumb has been five square meters for water, 20 for oxygen and 40 for food. So does that make food the limiting factor or the CO2 oxygen exchange the limiting factor? Water becomes your limiting factor because without water, you end up dehydrating. It is the heaviest uh, object oh. to take up. It requires a mass to get it up there. So that is the heaviest thing to, to get. And in fact, on the International Space Station and even on the space shuttle, water was being recycled because we use so much in just drinking and washing and safety. And it's somewhere on the order of, you know, five gallons a day, just to stay alive. And that's per water person. in per person. Okay. So that's water in, that you're washing on you, you're cleaning up, you're processing your food, it's inside your food. Interesting. That water's all got to be taken up. And then it goes inside you, it's got to be, it comes out to you as wastewater or off you as wastewater or evaporates as sweat as wastewater. And then that's got to be processed. So that's either dumped or recycled. And so that's the biggest limiting factor. Then the next one becomes uh, the gas exchange. And there are there, there are chemical ways of cleaning up the atmosphere scrubbing them and tossing them or breaking water to produce oxygen. But there's only what we have a biological means that we need to get food. So the bio, food is the biological imperative. So, I mean, even though you need the least amount of planted area to produce for, for evapotranspiration and to produce the water vapor, required to support yeah. that five gallons per day per person um it's still the limiting factor because it's so heavy and it's the hardest thing to take with us to space it is the hardest thing to take to us to space it is the one that is i mean you don't compress it you can't process it you know food i can pack up in a little bag and grind it uh take up flour i can compress gases into tanks Water doesn't do that. And, and plants, has, as you well know, have a tremendous capacity for uh, transpiring water and in, what I'd say purifying water. And they can be biologically, environmentally controlled. So the, the challenge that I think you spend much of your day-to-day -day work looking at how do you remove the water, control the water, managing that water is what I see in that closed system, the same challenge, but that's my water purification system. It goes through the plants and I'm producing pure water. So I don't wanna dump it, I wanna save it and reuse it and recycle. I, can I stick with this topic for just a minute? Because- Yeah. So, well, so, 
we're talking about reusing that water, right? So we're collecting right. it as condensate on, on some, I'm Correct. assuming, right? So as some sort of a cooling system, some sort of mechanical system that has a low right. dose point, we're condensing it out of the air. A lot of growers on earth are concerned about the quality of the water and leaching of, of any sort of heavy metals um, from, uh, you know, a, a dehumidifier, air conditioner, the pipes that are, you know, collecting that water. Um, did you guys find that uh, through your experiments or is it truly very pure water? Um, the, the, there are lots of nuance in that question because as what is being transpired off of the plant is pure water. You're having water vapor in that atmosphere. And then the collection of that water becomes the challenge. And then depending upon what that cooling coil is, whether you have some Peltier cooler, I don't wanna go down into weeds of this, but uh, the surface, we would use things like fritted stainless steel, or you would use even porous tubes that were ceramic or materials that were, you know, non-leaching. We didn't use copper pipes because we, you know, you're not using copper coils. It is always a concern of any contact with that water that is leaching things off. There is also the concern once you have this pure water transpired that on those surfaces, there may or may not be biofilms or other contaminants that are on them. So, you know, those then get treated downstream, either through filters or UV treatments or chemical treatments as to, before it goes into potable water. So we have those two, two issues that, that are, are run. So it's, that's a question of not the biology, but the material selection. So mm -hmm. in, in my mind, as a as a biologist, that's an engineering solution. You need the correct materials. That if you don't have the correct materials, you're going in poor quality, you're going to have leaching of heavy metals that are going to accumulate. Interesting, okay. Um, well, thank, thank you for answering that question and for uh, punting the ball back to me, the engineer. <laughs> well, you know. We, we, the, the, plant, the plants have not ever failed me. It has been the control systems. It has been the pumps. It has been the thermistors. It has been... The man-made things. The man-made things. <laughs> uh, I, I like, I like to, to say each morning I go out and I take a deep breath whenever, and uh, I'm not walking around with an oxygen tank just in case the biology failed me. Hmm. All right. So um, uh, let's step back. Let's start with the beginning, <laughs> Gary. Okay. Why grow plants in space? There are multiple reasons. Uh, and one is for long durations. Well, the, the first is to understand the role of gravity on our, on, on the biology, the operation of plants, and just the physiology of how they function. 
So from a basic science end, um, the plants have evolved in an environment that has changed. Temperatures have changed, light, atmospheric quality, light quality. Uh, they tell me that you know, the continents have moved and e even the magnetic poles periodically shift from one end to the other. The constant has been this force of gravity, this pull of mass that we, we adapt to. So once you move outside of that, we begin to unmask and discover this potentials of plants and other organisms to respond that have been masked by gravity. So it's an understanding of science. The second is in terms of the life support on long duration missions, as we addressed before, there are physical and chemical ways of processing and purifying water, uh, of removing toxic CO2 from the atmosphere, uh, producing uh, fresh oxygen. There are no uh, physical or chemical ways we know of yet to um, produce food. There's calories we need to stay alive. And then perhaps, you know, not as quantitative, but more importantly, is our engagement with plants, the role that it plays in our day-to-day -day lives, the psychology. We as human beings have evolved with plants, whether we recognize them or not. And the engagement provides a psychosocial balancing as we began to move outside of the realms of Earth into deep space and isolated from this planet from which we were born and evolved. I remember my friends, Jen and Lance from uh, the U of A uh, went down to McMurdo Station in Antarctica uh, yeah. to, to run the, the little farm there, yeah. um, yes. right? And they, I remember them saying that one of the biggest benefits that was sort of unexpected was how many people who are working down at the station just loved visiting, you know, this little indoor garden, basically just for that psychological benefit, that boost in, in their mental health, just to see some green plants, to see... Yeah you know, this light, you know, especially the people who are overwintering, um, you know, for a whole year, I can't even imagine what that's like to just, you can't go outside. And if you yeah. went outside, it was just white out. Um, and uh, people even reserving time to sit in that, that growth chamber uh, with the plants and be exposed to the humidity and the smells of the plants growing. So I, I think we do take for granted our, our personal, our human relationship with plants. So I, I, I'm glad that that is something that, that NASA has been looking at through this it research. It's certainly been, been looked at and, you know, those anecdotes are repeated over and over, not only on the South Pole, but on the Mars analog missions and by the astronauts on space and uh, individuals that are isolation and submarines that those scents, those aromas, those textures that come with, with plants. So once you're living in a, in an, I won't say an engineered world, but a, a mechanical world that is, you know, devoid of nature, 
you began to appreciate nature when you get those that touchstone. Yeah. Are there certain types of plants that we're interested in growing in space? I, you had mentioned earlier potatoes, which I definitely yeah. want to come back to that. Um, but wheat, I know there's some lettuces that have been grown. Um, literally, I, I'd say at this, yeah, dozens and maybe hundreds of different things have been evaluated, not necessarily grown in space. When I first began, the idea was looking for people fuel, chlorotic, you know, plants that would provide the calories. So we started, you know, we looked at things like rice and wheat and soya soy and soybeans and a lot of wheat. And then we began to use leafy greens like lettuce because they would turn over very quickly and were a good test for systems. This is a good system test. And then looking at other vegetables and fruiting vegetables like, like tomatoes, which made all of that stuff edible. And as, as we began to learn and, and understand that most of these plants that we use for calories or people fuel are relatively low harvest index or the amount of that plant that we actually eat. So if I grow a wheat plant, I throw away the stems, I throw away the leaves, I take the heads and I take the shaft and I'm left with the kernels. And I'm maybe 20% of that plant is a kernel. Soybeans, a big plant, you've got the pod, you break that off and you dry down the bean. So much of that energy, that light energy, that, uh, that electrical energy and that power to remove the humidity, to control the temperature that are fighting each other all the time is, goes into a compost pile, which will decompose and compete with me for oxygen. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And now I've got to deal with that. So, so the effort began to move towards things that were higher harvest index, that were, could be highly consumed directly, minimally processed food, and provide those vital nutrients and nutrition that maintain health and well-being. The lettuces, the leafy greens, the onions, the tomatoes, the peppers. And those would be selected for dwarfism, high, so really small plants, high harvest index or high percentage. If you can eat a lettuce, you're eating 95% of the plant. If you do it correctly, you know, tomato, you can eat 50, 60% of, of, of the plant if you make your selections right. And when we worked with potato, it, it won our contest, like up to 65%. Uh, all of the, you know, light energy went into that we put into that plant was harvestable as a drive weight, as a potato. So it's a exceptionally good one for calorie and selection. So those are the types of plants we look at, but there's lots of things. There's flowers that have been grown and vegetables and root crops and trying to understand that physiology What's the difference between a root crop like a potato, a, a grass or a monocot, an upright plant like a wheat versus a leafy plant that's vegetative as a lettuce or a fruiting crop that needs some pollination like a tomato or a pepper? How do you do that in an environment where there is no wind, 
How do you do that in an environment where it doesn't know which way is up? How do you do that when you've got to process all of the waste material, the waste water, the waste leaves, the waste shaft, and the food that comes from processing? So truly, it's a closed system. And that closed life support system, every waste material needs to be a resource for something else. That's amazing. Um, I, I also think about wheat as not being a particularly beautiful plant. Um, I mean, I'm sorry for all the wheat farmers out there, uh, but you know, I think of wheat as being brown. I'm sure there's a point at which it's green, right? But uh, when I think about some of the other plants you mentioned, you know, lettuce is green and tomatoes are red and these other flowering plants have flowers on them that the ad, there's an added benefit of looking at something beautiful, if, if I can use that term. Uh, you, you can, um, but wheat does have the advantage of growing very quick, quickly. Mm. It is one, it, it has, it's very, very good. You know, it can plant very densely. It's very efficient at processing water. It is very efficient at photosynthesizing and so purifying the atmosphere. So as soon as you get that vegetative part and you've got those leaves, those three pillars of life support, removing CO2, producing oxygen, and purifying water are all occurring. And so that is, is, is uh, you know, one of the benefits of the, of, the, of the grasses. What is also kind of interesting, just as an aside, it's one of the few crops that has appeared to be in a, a co-evolution with people. So at this point, um, if we did away with wheat, millions of human beings would die for lack of calories. But without the human being to break off that shaft at this point in our selection, the wheat plant as we know it today cannot survive. So we've had this co-evolution between plant and people that we take for granted. So Absolutely. I, I, I would like, die without bread. <laughs> <laughs> I try yes. not to eat a lot of it, but boy, do I love it. <laughs> I, I, un I understand. It is a, you know, one of the top three sources of calories on the planet. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if, if I thought about the future, so, I mean, a lot of the things that you're saying in terms of like these different plants, it sounds like the plants that we're going to grow in space is not going to be a monoculture. It's going to be a polyculture to kind of fit all these different needs. Is that true? That That, that is correct. Um, it will be a polyculture and it will evolve over time. So, I, you know, I... I anticipate, you know, it's hard to tell the future, but the, the early days of exploration are going to be larger of what, what's currently on the space station now. They're growing tomatoes and leafy greens, bok choy, different types of, of lettuce, uh, mizuna, many of the crops that are on indoor agriculture now for the very same reasons. They grow quickly, they turn over, they have high harvest index. Uh, there's tomatoes and peppers. Uh, 
but lots of different of these plants that provide two things to the diet. One is variety in one and the second are a lot of phytochemicals, the carotenoids, the anthocyanins, the colors that provide the health and well-being to maintain uh, health, increase the resistance to disease and disorders. So these bioprotectants can supplement far better, at least in my view, than taking some pills because there are constantly a variety of these circulating through our blood system and protecting the body from these harsh uh, stresses. As time goes on, we'll increase the, the caloric crops or find ways to produce food or start reimagining what food is. And are we growing you know, through cells and, and processing food? Do we have to go through this process? It's gonna be an interesting evolution how to manage that closed system. Yeah. We've talked about how um, we've co-evolved and the things that we humans need from plants. I mean, is there any research going the other direction about, I mean, plants and how many humans they need uh, to support them? Um, Do they care? They don't need a, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Well, what the plants need from us, depending upon the plant. So if you start going into space, which is a very controlled you know, world, they are going to need us to tend them and care for them. Uh, they are going to need us to give, to continue breathing, to provide the raw materials for photosynthesis so that we, we are the source of their photosynthesis. And in this symbiosis, if you will, they reward us by giving us oxygen. What we are going to require a mechanisms to provide them light. And in return for that light energy and our breathing in our CO2, uh, they are going to turn that into food. And what it behooves, what they need us to do in this environment is to identify those conditions that enable that to happen. I, I have this, you know, you, you, you don't do this before you start thinking, how do we interrelate here? Because I have got to not only let's take a tomato plant, you know, I can grow one that can do three of the four things that can give me water if I get leaves. It can photosynthesize. The very specific photo periods and temperatures and timings are required in order for that to produce the fruit and the flower that that plant can turn into a resource to support me. And in the same time, my responsibility is to allow that to reproduce so it can become, you know, a fully empowered tomato or pepper, if you will. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, it, this, you know, this, it's, it's a symbiosis. I mean, this sort of leads me to actually Marcia's question for you, which is, are we going to send farmers to space? You know, like, let's say we're colonizing the moon or Mars or something. 
are we sending farmers to space to tend these crops and do all the things you just described? Or are we training astronauts to play Matt Damon's character on The Martian to be able to put the farmer hat on? We are going to be training highly competent, skilled individuals to appreciate and understand plants as one of their duties. That in a certainly the early missions, that you know, having a specialist that does nothing other than you know tend the plants is not a realistic. So the tools that are being developed for remote sensing of when is early stress, how are we going to water them? What are the algorithms or the control systems for remote monitoring to optimizing temperature and humidity to growth that can be remotely monitored, self-learned, self-managed, or what in, in many ways is being incorporated in advance for indoor agriculture, indoor farms, plant factories, that autonomous production is going to be required because we're not going to have that individual that's just fully committed to it. That said, our experience has been over many decades when we have astronauts, whatever their background, engage with plants, their engagement increases with time that it is a living and dynamic organism in, in ways that I don't think a Geiger counter is. And so we will have farmers, whether they start out as farmers or not is, is a different question. Yeah, I like that. They almost turn into their pets in a way, right? Like something that they can take care of and tend to and watch them grow and, and flourish and, and be proud of, you know, of something that, that, that they were part of, of right. growing and producing. I, I, I would go further and say they're, they're, they're not their pets. They are very much like the, I guess, canary in the mine, if you will. If, if they are in a situation that they are unable to keep these plants alive, their ability to maintain this living organism, changing, going through life cycles, replanting for their life support is very much, if I can't do this, and I'm suppositioning here, is I'm relying here on all of this engineering component. Mm. This is an existential effort that I need to do. Okay, in low Earth orbit, it's not a problem. If I've got nine months to get home, you, you have what I think was brilliantly demonstrated in, in the Martian. You know, we can go on all of the factual things, but the big things got right. You know, we're going to need life support. It was biology that kept him alive. It was biology that was producing the food. It was the interactions of the biology that produced the soil and that reliance of those lowly potatoes on him to bring them out of the cabinet and reproduce and multiply and produce the oxygen and produce the food was reciprocated in keeping him alive and getting safe. So, you know, all of the details aside, that that message is very real. And I think 
uh, lasting. And and something that you said about potatoes having a harvest index of what what sixty five percent also yeah. I think adds some reality to to that movie in that he likely would have been able to produce enough food and calories for himself to to sustain. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and and that was you know historically. You know, the cause of the potato famine in, in, in Ireland and across part of Europe in the late 1800s, because so many people were dependent upon potatoes for their primary diet, because you, the family of, you know, eight or nine would have to support itself on a quarter acre. And the only thing that would produce enough that food would be the potato. So when the, when the famine came, and the disease came and the blight destroyed those crops, there was uh, widespread suffering and death. Yeah, good case against monoculture uh, farming production. Uh, Absolutely. You know, just for me, when I watch The Martian, I think um, one of the things that I always think about is dehumidification. (laughs) I cannot imagine why that would be the case. <laughs> it seems like there's too much water being produced, <laughs> but it's all good. Good thing it's a root crop, right? Probably not as as susceptible to to molds and diseases above the ground. <laughs> you know, it was it was the blight that destroyed it, which was an above ground. Well, there you go. So yeah, you know those balance. So you got all kinds of you know details. Because the pressure on Mars is, you know, very, very low atmospheric pressure. And that's going to require developing new materials and ways of thinking. It'll probably be buried under a regolith. Because you think about, so, so the pressure difference is, you know, about, it's a little over a hundredth, uh, less than a hundredth, almost a thousandth of what it is here on Earth. Wow. So, so you think of, you know, you're driving, you know, when you go fill up the air on your tire, you are at, you know, twice atmospheric pressure and you see the thickness that's required to keep that going. If, if you're on a bicycle, you're about three times atmospheric pressure and then that blows. In the laboratory where I routinely do gas analysis and we concentrate an atmosphere it's like a hundred times difference. I've got steel canisters to keep that from exploding. So, so the structure that's going to keep the water being a humidifying person here and a, who knows all about the psychometric charts, once you get those really low pressures and you start to boil away. So in order to maintain that pressure to keep it from exploding, it's going to require increased incredible strength of materials, which we would like to be translucent so we could get some of the sunlight in, but to prevent that explosion. So one of the questions we got to look at, and I, I was fortunate to do a lot, lot of work, we just published some of it earlier this year, on how low can you go on pressure? Because the lower you go on pressure, the less oxygen, the less resupply I need, the less structural mass is required. But from your world, uh, you know, the rates of water movement is much faster because there's lower pressure. So the rates of flow, but there's less water in the air because there's less 
atmosphere. Yeah. So, you know, you know, how does this less absolute water at a very high humidity of the holding capacity affect nutrients? How is that affecting, you know, growth of plants? Uh, what's that flow through? There's lots of really interesting questions that have to be answered before we go on these long duration space missions. So you're saying we're not just using like polycarbonate <laughs> glazing for a greenhouse on Mars? <laughs> Probably not. That's wishful thinking, but no, we are not. And so his sheets of biz queen wrapped around the inside that fluttered in the breeze were probably not going to cut it. Okay. Have we dug, have we drilled holes into Mars? Can, can we yeah. dig underneath there? Yes. Uh, currently there are missions on Mars that are drilling for, for water and mapping the surface. I think at this point there's seven active missions that are, are going. There's helicopters that are flying doing surface surveillance. We're looking at landing spots, looking at nutrients, looking at, we're collecting rocks that we can bring back. We're trying to find that opportunities for life. We're surveying, we're doing our due diligence of, you know, what is there, what can be done. But yes, the, you know, how that's actually going to work, you know, is to be determined. I mean, okay, so, th I mean, this is kind of a good segue into just asking you about some of the general challenges or specific challenges with growing plants uh, in space and in microgravity. You just talked about Mars being super low pressure. Yeah. Um, we're going to boil off the water before we can use it. And and how would the plant would the plants be able to use it at such a low pressure? But but what are some of the technological challenges that that we face in growing plants? There there are two separate areas I'll, I'll just talk on that one is going from earth to mars or to the moon because there's there's no gravity and so in the absence of gravity that changes lots of things but one is the plants doesn't know which way is up and which way is down second there is no differentiation there's difference in mass but not weight so water air and solid things don't separate. So what we call phase separation, they all mix together. You can't count on water bubbling, to, water flowing out of solution and gas popping to the top. They all just mix together. So if, you know, we are sitting here talking and then there's no air movement, what we call convective mixing. Here on earth in a closed room, carbon dioxide is well, that's CO2 and oxygen is O2, so it's heavier. So with gravity, it is slowly coming down, bouncing and moving and displacing other molecules. So you have what's called convective mixing. And gravity, that doesn't happen. So every time you would exhale, you'll have a cloud of CO2 around you and you can suffocate because the air carbon dioxide doesn't dissipate around you. Similarly, water will, will accumulate on the top of leaves and nowhere to go. So your boundary layer gets thicker and thicker and thicker. Water sticks to this, tries to form these balls. They're super cool on space videos, but they're very, very hard to deal with around roots. 
So if you have roots that are respiring, where does that CO2 go? Now it dissipates out of the roots and oxygen go in. Getting water away from the roots so they're not waterlogged or to a root to waterlog, get them. You've got to deal with all kinds of ways. How do you get water to the roots? How do you get water away from the roots? How do you get gas to the roots? How do you get it away? Which way's up, which way's down? So those are environmental and engineering challenges. I, I, first off, <laughs> earthbound <laughs> farmers, indoor growers right now, you think air distribution is hard in your vertical farm? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it is absolutely a, a fundamental challenge. And getting that heat dissipation, all of that localization of temperature, airflow, pollination that is dependent upon air movement in the fundamental, in the absence of your, your talents as an engineer to introduce airflow just don't happen. So the laws of thermodynamics don't necessarily apply in microgravity. The laws of thermodynamics absolutely apply in gravity, in microgravity, but gravity becomes a major factor that happens. The gravity effect on thermodynamics or energy flow or boundary layers on Earth is negligible. We write it off because it's just a fraction. When you remove this fundamental force of gravity that's separating and moving and convecting, and you go into that, you know, that space where that doesn't exist, then gravity suddenly takes on huge importance. So things like surface tension. How do you get surface tension? Hysteresis of, of materials, flow and adhesion, movement across of diffusion becomes molecules from one place to another. I mean, those take on primary importance. Now, one of the, one of the last series of experiments I, I did on space station was looking at that on some beneficial microbes. And the question was, we're looking for nitrogen fixation fundamental here on earth, can these microbes find each other? Okay, so it is thought on earth, there's some chemical signals, you get to the roots, they do these signals, how do they recognize them? Can they find each other if those signals are not diffusing out? If these aromatics, these volatiles are staying around the root or the plant, do they ever get to the microbe that's a millimeter away? Do they? The <laughs> they do. It turns out they did. They found out that they could find each other. They they formed a relationship. Uh, we've got the early stages of the nitrogen fixation process were demonstrated in the first synergy experiment. I would still like to, you know, be the first one to get form nodules in space, but I I may not be the one to do that, but it, it it's a goal. Wow. Uh, but wow. those plant microbe interactions change and the virulence and the bioactivity of microbes change because the chemistry and that relationship that we don't understand 
appears to be altered between humans and microbes and plants and microbes. It, it's, it's a wide open field at this point, but this dynamic of the ecosystem that we are going to create knowingly or unknowingly as we move off this planet to survive in deep space is, is going to be you know, a fundamental challenge. And it's not unlike those fundamental challenges that, that I see in, in, in indoor farms or greenhouses, and I'm sure you do. Uh, okay, we, we put this engineering system, but we forget that there's a biological entity that's changing and photosynthesizing and it's cooling and it's that leaf structure is part of the humidity control system or the temperature control system. Uh, there are biofilms that form. There's water that's moving in and out of this system. And here on earth, we tend to chase those problems. We try and manage those. And when they get out of control, we pull the plug and we start over. That's not going to be an option when you're in deep space or even this point on Mars where you've got a nine-month mission back. You need to understand how we are all interconnected and the biology and the engineering work in this system. It is, it is very much a circular economy, that point of phrase. Uh, yeah. While you're on microbes for a minute, so that's the work you're doing at Synergy, right? Right. Oh, right. When, did you, when did you start Synergy? Where's, where's that name come from? The, the very first uh, experiment that we did on, on this, so I was still working at Kennedy Space Center, was Synergy, I think it was symbiotic nitrogen fixation in a reduced gravity environment, Synergies. And we began a whole series of, uh, of experiments. And then we proposed a second one looking at some fungi, uh, Michael, some re really cute neat organism that we called MERGE, which was mutualisms in a reduced gravity environments. And I, I took a bit of sabbatic and began working with um, a group in, in Europe, in Ireland. And when I came back, I had the opportunity to, to follow up on that, but it was easier and more efficient as a private company. So I left that form Synergy took that name and have subsequently had two experiments to the International Space Station with populations of beneficial microbes. They've spent, you know, months or more up there. We brought them back, recovered them and identified down-selected, some that seem to have very positive and beneficial results that they did not have before they went up. So epigenetically stable changes. So what we're looking now is to see how stable they are and trying to convince myself that they are of value to this industry I, I, I know and love of this controlled environment hydroponic systems. How we can move away from the idea that all microbes is bad, are bad, let's sterilize everything, let's filter everything and face the reality that that's not going to happen and let's use that microbial community to, to increase the resistance of the plant, to provide them hormones, 
to, to grow stronger, to grow faster, and be more efficient at using the limited resources that we provide them. Yeah, I think, you know, the, those beneficial microbes, there's, I feel like we're just always inundated with, with news or with research that says that, you know, microorganisms are bad for us. Um, and they make us, that's what makes us sick and ill. And, you know, there's an E. coli outbreak, but people don't realize necessarily that there's E. coli in, in our intestines. And this is a new E. coli that our body is trying to fight off, right? Like we have bacteria right. in our bodies that are, and on our bodies that are actually good for us, right? We all have staph, right? On our, on our we skin, but yeah. And then you get a staph infection. You're like, oh, staph is bad. Well, actually there's benefits to it. It's just that, you know, there was an outbreak and you had a cut and something, you know, like something was off. Maybe your immune system was down. Right. right? And so I, I'm really grateful that you are doing that type of research with plants too, because that's one of the things that I like to talk about too, is that, you know, yes, I understand growers wanting to stress their plants, especially cannabis growers, right? They'll lower that temperature. They'll, they'll withdraw yep. water and nitrogen from it to stress the plant. Um, and then they wonder, you know, and if they do it too soon or if they, you know, if they're not doing it right at the end to to really kill the plant, right. um, then their plants are more susceptible to de disease. It's like, well, that, you know, stress at some point is good for us. Right. What doesn't kill us makes right. us stronger, but it also lowers our immune system. And so when you think that by creating a drier climate that you're going to make your plant less susceptible to powdery mildew or to, to other molds, you actually might be making it more susceptible because its immune system is down. Absolutely. And that's where the, those microbial communities in the rhizosphere or on the leaves mm -hmm. or even inside the plant that we don't understand. I'm not even going to pretend to understand, mm -hmm. but that they provide a, a sense of protection they, when you stress these plants out and they can recover, they provide that window of opportunity, that, that le level of armor, I guess, if you will, that is on the food side by, you know, eat a plate of, you know, color on your, color on your plate, lots of vegetables, lots of different phytochemicals, because you have them pulsing through your system and you don't know what the environmental insult is going to be. So you have a large arsenal of biological compounds to protect us. When similarly, the plant has this huge arsenal of biological compounds to protect it. And sometimes they work and sometimes it needs a little boost. And I think that boost can, can come from these, these organisms. And that's, you know, I've been devoting a fair amount of my energies to working that, that. But it, you know, it introduces some challenges that I'd want to go back to, you know, people think all microbes are bad. You know, very early, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about, you know, LED lights are bad. LED lights are not going to give you the right spectrum or they're not going to look right or you're not going to get you know the phytoactive um, psychoactive constituents of cannabis in, unless you you know use real light we can't grow under artificial light 
And that has always concerned me because I'm not growing artificial plants under artificial light. I am growing real plants under real photons that are generated by electricity. And I use that electricity with, and I can now control that spectrum. And the, the beauty of the technologies of the narrow band light emitting diodes, it allows us to uncover these exquisite controls that the plant has developed over eons for all this broad spectrum. It's the sun spectrum has changed more so than gravity, but not as much. So you take that away, you begin to unmask potentials. And I think you've seen that in your work. Growers are beginning to see that in indoor farms with, with uh, vegetables. We're certainly seeing it in the cannabis industry that by altering the spectrum, the timing of that spectrum, where it's hit and how hard the constituents change, which suggests to me as a plant physiologist, an exquisite level of control that we can now dance with the plant. We, we have that ability to not just beat it over the head, but to, to dance with it. Mm, I love that image. Um, is it true, since you brought up LEDs, that LEDs were first used to grow plants for some of these NASA experiments? NASA was a very, very early uh, adopter of, of LEDs. For, for plant growth. And, you know, that was the, the first patents in the U.S. for growing plants under, under plants were at from the University of Wisconsin from NASA-funded grants in the late 1980s. In early 90s, the uh, first uh, really weak LEDs were on the International Space Station growing, growing plants um, from experiments out, out of Wisconsin. And so why? The, why, why, why were, yeah, why were LEDs being tested to grow plants? Well, you know, it had, it had everything to do with space volume and safety. If um, the current lights that we, we, a lot of people still use high pressure sodium lights, fluorescent lights, incandescent lights, or, or encased in glass, they're inside a vacuum. Uh, there are uh, heavy metals, many of them toxic, say, say mercury in a, in a fluorescent tube. They get very, very hot and they don't last very long. So if you're looking at a long duration mission, you're taking, in order to provide this light, you're taking a lot of supplies, taking a lot of light bulbs. If they break in the absence of gravity, they all float. All of that fluorescent powder floats. These little pieces of glass, nobody wants to get pieces of glass in their eyes, nose, and nostril. So mercury floating around. And now you have mercury going around. Oh you my take God. a high pressure sodium and then you you, you basically have, have a bomb. So for long missions, it just wasn't feasible. So the technologies that were now available were these which still amaze me, these little wafers of metals that you run electricity to, they excite and they give off photons of light. And they were very low levels. 
and not much more than an indicator light at the at the time. So we put together a lot of them, um, but that fundamentally changed because now I don't need to be a long way away from my plant because the light bulb gets too hot and will cook it. I can get it right up next to the plant because the heat's going off the back and not out the front. It's not, it's cool to the touch. I don't have to replace it. It'll last tens of thousands of hours. The energy efficiency at the time wasn't particularly good, but it's gotten much better. Um, but they don't break. They're cool to the touch uh, and, and they don't need resupply. So it was a safety reason. I don't have a touch I don't have a touch hazard. I don't have a breakage hazard. I don't have a high eye hazard. I don't have a resupply hazard. And that allowed us in NASA to grow our plants more effectively in less volume with fewer inputs. And that question of how we did that over time, that got picked up and Look, that is fundamentally changing the way we grow plants worldwide. Thank you for joining us for the first half of our interview with Dr. Gary Studi, founder of Synergy. Join us next week to hear the rest of our conversation. Thank you for growing with us.